My name's Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Thank you for inviting me this morning. Nice to see everyone waving. Um, before I launch into the topic, um, there's something I'd like to say. I, I've had some conversations over the past two days with another member of my home group about the fact that the primary purpose of AA has been somewhat compromised by the situation. So uh, the task of informing still suffering alcoholics that AA exists is a harder one. The usual channels are not available. Secondly, if a still suffering alcoholic were to discover AA exists and would want to join it or go to a meeting or have some sort of contact. It's much harder now, it's much harder for them to find where the meetings are and how they join them. And thirdly, my home group, uh, people turn up a few minutes in advance, you have a chance for a bit of human contact, you can tell them what to expect, you take them for dinner afterwards, whether they want to be taken for dinner or not. <laughs> and you have a chance to do the real business, which happens at dinner after the meeting. The, after the meeting is just the pep rally. The business happens afterwards. And these are three major tasks. And I was discussing with my friend what we can do um, about how in AA in Great Britain, we're carrying the message, uh, what the General Service Office can do, uh, what the various websites can do, how they can be linked up properly, how we can change the format, content and structure of our group to make sure that if newcomers come in, they're welcomed differently, properly. Uh, online people tend to you know, pop in and pop out. It's very difficult to establish a relationship. So this was this was our discussion. And the reason it chastened me is I haven't been spending enough time thinking about that. I haven't been spending enough time taking action in behalf of those still suffering alcoholics. Um, the, the point of the, the meetings may be, the point of my home group, maybe at my home group, we shouldn't be discussing our emotional reactions to the situation. We should be discussing how we can carry the message more effectively to alcoholics. Um, and I think there's a line later on in the big book where it says something similar that, that what, what people are thinking about above all is how they can present this newfound uh, miracle to the rest of the world. That was the primary topic. Um, so that's something I'm thinking about a lot at the moment and we've got lots of plans. Uh, we've started to put those plans into effect and change is happening. Um, On to the topic of the day. So I, I chose this topic because it, it gives us everything we need to know about the problem and everything we need to know about the solution, at least in, in summation. Um, well, what are my credentials? Well, I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since the 24th of July, 1993. I first started to seek sobriety in 1990. So it took three years to find the right people, 
to find the right message and to adopt the message that was carried to me. Um, and my home group is a, a Friday evening group in London called Hoxton Big Book Step. Um, in the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. When I got to AA, I didn't read the preceding chapters. So people, people would give you, a, in 1993, people would give you a big book, uh, but they wouldn't really tell you what to do with it. I mean, they'd suggest, well, you can read it, but what, what, what does reading it mean? Uh, uh, I, I read it like one would read a novel. And some bits I liked and some bits I didn't like. And if I didn't like it, I just skipped over it. Irrelevant, 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 irrelevant. And I don't think I did a proper step one when I got to AA. I was, I was, I was desperate. Uh, some people come to AA because their lives collapse. I think I came to AA um, in part because my life couldn't get off the ground. There was no fuel to get it off the ground. It just stayed on the ground when I was drinking. Um, I mean, the real reason I got to AA was the grace of God, because all the evidence was there um, that I should stop drinking and seek sobriety and find other people to help me from, you know, from the, from the late 80s. So it wasn't knowledge and information which got me here. It must have been a power greater than myself because the information was there all along. But that's another, that's another topic. Um, but I was, I was desperate. I was desperately unhappy. I was desperately frightened by my drinking because when I got up in the morning, uh, no matter how much I wanted or needed to stay sober, there was no knowing if I was going to stay sober through, throughout the course of that day. Um, and I went to a lot of meetings. I mean, I had this in my favour. Uh, I was going to up to 10 meetings a week, despite working a full-time job. And the basic format of meetings in London at that time was that someone would share for about 20 minutes on the more lurid aspects of their drinking. And then for about 10 minutes would share some some pleasant platitudes about how much nicer things were now they weren't drinking. And there'd be a nod in the direction of the AA programme if you were lucky. And the trouble is with these lurid presentations of people's drinking stories. Uh, my drinking wasn't lurid, it was dull. I just got drunk every day. And I, I, I mean, I occasionally did some frightful things and I occasionally did some dangerous things. I occasionally became violent. I occasionally threw myself in front of traffic. Um, but mostly I just drank and slurred and vomited. There's, there's not much of a story in there. And I listened to all these stories around me. And honestly, I didn't identify with these grand anecdotes. I didn't have grand anecdotes, but I sensed instinctively, not because of what people said, I sensed instinctively that I was in the right place and that whatever you had, I had. Um, I needed to be ultimately taken very carefully through the big book by, uh, I, I did it ultimately not by, uh, through a sponsor, but through tapes. It was ultimately tapes of people doing big book studies. 
that showed me how to read this book. Uh, and I would get, I was the sort of person that would get hung up on a particular line in the big book, uh, struggle with it, not ask anyone for help or for a, a different way to look at it, a, an angle to understand it. I just reject it. And I'll give you two examples. One of them, uh, it said, uh, it says somewhere that uh, prior to having a drink, there was little serious or uh, or effective thought about what the terrific effects would be of having a drink. Now, the effects of having a drink for me were the gradual dissolution of my hope, um, like acid being dropped, drop by drop on my life. There weren't very often terrific consequences from one drinking bout. So I thought, well, I don't identify with that. That's the end of that. Um, there's there's a, another line where, let me just see if I can find it. There we go. It says on in Bill's story, I remember at Christmas 1993, I was back living with my parents over the Christmas holidays. Uh, I was at um, studying at college and I was back for the Christmas holidays and I made the mistake of reading the big book late at night on my own to try to cheer myself up. And I got I obviously got as far as Bill's story because I remember very clearly reading page 10 where it says, I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I'd often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. And he goes on to say, few people really are, for that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originates in a cipher and aimlessly, aimlessly rushes nowhere. I thought, well, I find that perfectly reasonable that the universe is aiming aimlessly rushing nowhere that's exactly how i'd felt for the previous 21 years of my life everything is pointless <laughs> so i flung the book yet again across the room so this has nothing to do with me and the way that i got through i i did hobble through step one um but rather than like you, you imagine a steeplechase, someone jumping, running and jumping hurdles, elegantly leaping over each of the hurdles and getting to the finishing line. That's, that's what step one should look like. There are some hurdles to get over. There are some points to understand. There are some, uh, uh, there are some things to learn. There are some things to identify with. My first step one in 1993, uh, I ran through the hurdles and knocked them aside. I got to the finishing line, but not in the manner intended. My step one essentially boiled down to this. My life so far has been a complete catastrophe and alcohol is clearly a major part in it. I probably shouldn't have a drink, so show me what to do. But there was no serious understanding of it. Now, this, 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 this was effective enough. I wouldn't give you tuppence for how I did step one in 1993, but I did it in a manner of speaking. Um, but this laid a trap for me. Because I left AA at eight years. I was having some emotional problems and uh, psychological problems, probably spiritual problems, if truth be told. And I'd go to meetings and people would say, go to meetings. Uh, and I'd say, I I'm having trouble letting go. And they said, hang on, <laughs> don't leave before the miracle happens. 
Now, there is truth and utility in these things. It, it was quite right to tell me to continue going to meetings and to hang on. But I wasn't given a solid solution by these very well-meaning people around me. So I left AA and at around nine and a half years, I didn't drink, but I got very close. Um, I was offered drugs in a situation uh, and luckily I had a shred of sanity and something said to me in my heart and my mind, get out of here now. And I got out of here now and I rejoined AA. Um, it might be added that I'd become to some extent religious in my first eight years and that religious practice continued extremely haphazardly but it continued nonetheless throughout that year and a half i think if i had hadn't had that relationship haphazard as it was with a power greater than myself for that year and a half i don't think i would have reacted to the situation presented the little voice wouldn't have been there to say get out and get out now anyway um digression upon digression i'm going to get to the paragraph at some point um, I come back to AA and I think I better do the steps. I don't know why I thought I better do the steps or I thought I better do the steps. And I went to my home group. Uh, I won't say what it was to protect the innocent and, protect, and to protect the guilty. Um, but I said to not, I talked to a number of people and said, can you tell me what, what does it mean to be powerless over alcohol? What does it mean that my life has become unmanageable? And I got 10 entirely different answers that I could not reconcile with each other. And I thought, well, I, I need to find a different way of truth. If, if the truth is the person that I picked, or what, what, do I pick one of these 10 people and that one is telling the truth because I've picked them? Am I picking the truth? Am I picking the nature of alcoholism? I need something more solid than that. I recognised at an instinctive level I needed solid ground because a voice in my head said, how do I know at 10 years sober at that point, how do I know that if I drank today, it would be a disaster? How do I know maybe I drank the way that I drank because I was young or stupid or maladjusted or surrounded by the wrong people or or because I was in distressed circumstances. Could have been any number of things. My life was completely different at 10 years. Um, instinct or grace took me to some people online. This was the beginning of the internet uh, becoming widely uh, accessed for AA purposes. I listened to some tapes and I heard people talking about the doctor's opinion and I read the preceding chapters in the light of what those people on tapes were telling me. And I, I the book was written to be freestanding. It was, uh, you know, AA was started in Los Angeles by someone who found, according to Chuck Chamberlain, by someone who found the big book in his suitcase, not knowing how it got there. <laughs> So it was meant to be freestanding, but it, for me, it wasn't. I needed people to explain it. And once it was explained, all the lights turned on. 
So that's the first. I, so in reading those chapters, I learned something of alcoholism. I've learnt more since then. It doesn't say you've learnt everything about alcoholism. You've learnt something. Uh, more has been revealed since then. Uh, so now we're on to the meat of this. We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. And one impression, one illusion I think that I had for many years was that there are there are thousands of different types of alcoholics and there are degrees of it and some people had it bad and some people had it had high bottoms and low bottoms and you know there was such a thing as a functioning alcoholic fyi apparently that's a description of the stage of your alcoholism not the type of alcoholic but that's another question the book was very helpful to me because the earlier chapters says you've got two types of people, alcoholic, non-alcoholic. Hey, which are you? And it gives you some diagnostic tests for determining are you alcoholic or, or are you non-alcoholic? And the book is great. It's about to go on to step two, but it's, it wants to make sure you've got step one before you get on to step two. So it summarises step one. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. One point about this uh, distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic, this being a binary distinction, you're one or you're the other. Um, the preceding chapters make clear that alcoholism, make clear to me at any rate, that alcoholism has three chief characteristics. This is the prognosis, if you have it. Number one, it's progressive. That means it's going to get worse as you get older. As I continue to drink throughout the late 80s and early 90s, I needed more and more alcohol, yet was getting less and less of an effect in terms of its release of me from my emotional problems. It, was, it, it wasn't working in the same way, but I needed more and more. This is progression. I was finding it increasingly difficult to stop after relapses. This is progression. So it's progressive. Secondly, it's fatal. Uh, I saw people around me in early AA slipping and dying the same day, slipping and dying within three weeks. I've seen many people over the years die the most gruesome deaths from alcoholism. So it's progressive and fatal. And thirdly, it's incurable. Uh, I know someone that uh, on uh, on his around his 30th AA birthday, which is around his 60th natal birthday he started drinking again and is now sitting in doorways smoking crack in central london uh it's incurable 30 years sober starts again bang off to the races as bad as he ever was so this distinction between alcoholic and non-alcoholic is really important to me because if i'm alcoholic i have something which is progressive and fatal and incurable if i get on the merry-go-round it may never stop so I must never get on the merry-go-round. So I really, really need to know whether or not I'm an alcoholic. Characteristic, I'm going to take the second characteristic first. If when drinking you have, so we've covered the prognosis. 
fatal, progressive, incurable. We're now on to the diagnosis. How do I know I've got it? When I drink, I have little control over the amount that you take. It talks in the doctor's opinion about this phenomenon of craving. So con continuing to drink after the first drink beyond reasonable levels. And it says, if you ever have this, you've got a problem. This never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Those few times, those times I held it together are completely irrelevant. I've got plenty of friends who are not alcoholic. And I've said, have you ever completely lost control after the first drink? And they said, what do you mean? They, they literally don't understand the question. Now, my problem with understanding this in early years in AA, and I understand it now, is I didn't think I had a compulsion to drink alcohol after the first drink. I just thought, I want another a drink, so I'm having another drink. This is an act of the will. It's not a compulsion. A compulsion by its nature is something which is beyond the will. So the only way to tell that it was a compulsion and not a mere desire is to look at it from a different angle. And there are a couple of angles which help. First of all, were there any times when I did not want to get super drunk, but got super drunk? Absolutely. Two examples. Example number one, when I was with my family, I did not want to get super drunk. I wanted to get mildly tipsy, but not super drunk, because my brother was an alcoholic who committed suicide. So my family is a little touchy when it comes to alcohol. It, I, if I got drunk, it was not going to be fun. It was not going to be cute. It was not going to be elegant. There'd be consequences. Secondly, hot date. You really don't want to be drunk and sloppy and messy on the first date or the second. You want to reel them in, get them to sign on the bottom line first, and then you can let the, then you can let the pig out. In those situations, when I didn't want to get drunk, I got drunk anyway. What exp uh, and, and when I look at, with hindsight, the next morning, I always wished I had never gotten so drunk. I have to conclude, you see, uh, an act of the, a, a real act of the will is a commitment to action based on a sound analysis of the facts. I wasn't drinking more. I wasn't committing committing to the action of drinking more in order, uh, you know, to achieve a particular purpose because I'd soundly analysed it. Um, because I look at the consequences and it doesn't make sense. And it wasn't because the doctor's opinion gives some great reasons why one might drink too much. It says, maybe it's because you messed up, maladjusted life. When I was having a great time, when I was happy, when things were going my way, I massively overshot on those occasions too. It wasn't just when I was unhappy. It says, maybe you were mad. Maybe you couldn't think straight. Now, I was nuts at the end of my drinking. N-U-T-S, nuts. But at the beginning, I wasn't. But this, this phenomenon of massively overshooting happened with me watching it like I was watching a film, totally clear what was happening, totally unable to stop it. If that be the case, you know, I have a physical craving. What does a physical craving mean? It, it means that when I have a drink, I become more thirsty for a drink, not less thirsty. A normal desire for something is satisfied by fulfilling the desire. 
Uh, this is not an ordinary desire. What makes it a craving is if I have alcohol, it increases my desire, not uh, rather than diminishing it. So I have to conclude, I, I meet the second test. If when drinking, I have little control over the amount you take, I'm pro ding, 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 great. Now, if that's the case, uh, I should never have one drink. Why? Because if I drink, I may never stop. This lack of control pertains not just to my drinking in the course of an evening. It, it, it pertains to whole cycles. I was sober for three months in 1990. Count them, three months. I have one drink. It's nine or ten months before I draw a real sober breath again. So if I have a drink, I may never stop. A friend of mine slipped in 1995, 25 years later, he's still struggling to put together a few days. Therefore, the real question is, having concluded, I should never have a drink. Um, well, can I quit entirely? Now, um, my problem with uh, this part of step one, when I got so, when I first got sober, was I thought, um, I, I just wanted, I, you know, okay, occasionally I tried to give up and managed it for a while, but basically I wanted to drink. It's kind of irrelevant. What it talks about on the top of page 21 is, and this is the primary distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic, um, with the alcoholic, um, or with the non-alcoholic rather, um, uh, if you'll pardon my French, when shit goes down, uh, the non-alcoholic stops and moderates. With the alcoholic, when disaster strikes because of alcohol, he can't stop and moderate. Now, or doesn't stop and moderate. Now, I look at the disasters, the, bro the broken relationships and the, bro and the missed opportunities. I messed up opportunity after opportunity um, in my late teens. That did not dent the amount I was drinking. It did not dent the fact I was drinking. So whether or not I tried, what the dynamics of those attempts to stop drinking were was irrelevant. The fact that all through that, I appeared to myself and to others to be gleefully continuing to drink, discounting all of the catastrophes is irrelevant. What marks me as an alcoholic is not whether I felt like drinking, it's whether catastrophe stopped me. It didn't. So I put these two together. I am doomed to have another drink left to my own devices because common sense and willpower won't stop me. And if I start, I may never stop. To me, this is step one. This is my powerlessness over alcohol. Left to my own devices, I will have a drink. If I have a drink, I will continue. Now, this does prompt the question, where does unmanageability come in? And the big book is a little, little bit naughty. So it's gonna mention unmanageability on page 59. And it says, you know, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. It's supposed to be a summary. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. OK, we've got the powerlessness thing, but you haven't mentioned unmanageability. Now you're asking me to sign up to something you haven't defined. This is problematical. Um, uh, this is one of the big books, less glorious moments, introducing the notion of unmanageability without defining it. And now, what's going to 
come now as an opinion. So if you don't like it, hard luck. There we go. I'll be gone in half an hour. Um, and you're allowed to disagree with me. You know, no one needs to leave the room, blah, blah, blah. Uh, unity in tradition one does not mean uniformity. We get to think different things. Um, I've listened to a lot of AA speakers. I've been to a lot of meetings and unmanageability I, appears to be the notion in AA over which there is most disagreement as regards definition. You know, people cite restless, irritable discontent. People cite the bedevilments. People cite all sorts of different things. Now, I don't disagree with any of those particularly, but my, my deal is this. Um, the poster boy for alcoholism in the first 44 pages of the big book is this bloke called Fred, who's got an amazing life, who is charming and successful. Everything is going well. Emotionally, he's fine. And yet he relapses. He wasn't restless, irritable and discontent. And he doesn't fulfill the definition of the bedevilments on page 52. He could make a living. Uh, all of those other things were just not true. What's he going to do when he gets to step one? Say, I guess my, you know, uh, I'm not unmanageable according to those definitions. I can't do the steps. There has to be, there has to be, it, it's got to work for every alcoholic. And there's a bit in the 12 and 12, and it is not often referred to because big book people tend to not talk about the 12 and 12 and vice versa. If you put the two together, um, uh, you know, it's like in heart to heart, it was murder. You put the two together, it's brilliant uh, because it explains what was meant by unmanageability back in 1939. And it talks about the struggle of people who are trying to work out if they're alcoholic or not. And it says, what about the people who don't have external catastrophe, who've still got a house, who've still got two cars in the garage? How can they admit their life was unmanageable? And it says, going back through our own drinking histories, we realised that our drinking was no mere habit, was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression. Aha! So this is unmanageability, is the inability to determine the course of your life because you are in the grip of a progressive, fatal, incurable disease. It may have manifested in bankruptcy and divorce and catastrophe, or the surface may be fine. The surface is irrelevant. The emotional life is irrelevant. The question is, am I in the grip of a fatal, progressive, incurable disease? And the reason this is so important to me today is my powerlessness entails my unmanageability. If left to my own devices, I can't choose whether or not I have a drink and then I can't choose how much I drink. I am not in, the char in charge of the course of my life. The demon is in charge of the course of my life. It if it gives me the command to drink, I will drink, it's over. So I've got to not be in charge so that even if the demon speaks to me, because I'm not in the habit of doing what the demon asks me to do, I won't do what the demon asks me to do in that situation, which is what a spiritual experience is about. It's about recognising I am not the captain of my own ship. I am the servant of something far greater than me. And I have to be the servant of that thing which is far greater than me. Um, uh, 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year for the rest of my life, because I don't know. I, you have to be on guard for the unguarded moment. 
I don't know the point at which that voice is going to say, go on, drink it. So turning my will and my life over to a power greater than myself, waking up to this greater reality of which I'm only a tiny part, that to me is the solution to alcoholism. I'm not just turning over a little bit of my life, I'm turning over the whole of my life because I've got to be in the habit of listening to a different voice. Um, my head comes up with all sorts of stuff, it still does on a daily basis. I'm not in charge of what I think of, I'm in charge of what I think about. So what comes into my head is anybody's guess. What matters now that I'm sober is what I do with it. So my a little bit about my um, life today, what this business of a spiritual experience is. Um, it, it's all very well having a lovely moment. I had a lovely moment on a hillside in uh, overlooking Florence in 1991. It was glorious. But then I had the, 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 the second bottle of wine and it was gone. You know, you're going to get these flashes. I remember distinctly having, um, uh, I was drinking my, uh, one of my usual uh, evening drinks. This was around, oh, 1990, October, November. Uh, and I don't know if you have them in Australia. We have these mints called after eight mints, which are these little, little thin mints, after dinner mints with a chocolate coating. And I used to, I was drinking a, a, a pint of after eight and after, after eight was creme de cacao, creme de menthe and, and gin. Um, it, it got me just where I needed to be. And part way through this, I thought, you know what? My problem is that I'm a selfish bugger. I need to build my life on helping other people. But I hadn't, I, and it was, I was absolutely right. You know, even a broken watch is right to, you know, a couple of times a day. So the answer was there. I had no way of implementing it. I had no program to get me out of the way consistently enough to do something about it. And where do you start helping people? I mean, it's an impossible inspiration to act on. And what the AA program does, the three elements of the 12 steps, service and fellowship, give me a structured approach to doing this. And that structured approach, when I take step three, um, I'm doing a couple of things. Or I'm doing several things. First of all, I'm resigning as the captain of the ship. I'm resigning as the manager of my own life. I'm saying from here on in, all I ever have to do is the next right thing. If you watch Frozen 2, if you have children, you will have seen it already. If you're going to have children, you will see it a thousand times. <laughs> Do the next right thing. It's literally, it just peppers the whole film. Um, i got to do the next right thing moment by moment, day by day for the rest of my life under the guidance of a higher power, with the guidance of a sponsor, with the guidance of the people around me. The reason I need people around me is... Uh, I have distorted perception on any matter where I have skin in the game. Um, I need people who are unemotionally involved in my situation to say, oh, no, 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 you're completely off track here. Um, when I take step three, when I adopt that position, 
of God being the employer, me being the employee. That's the one that I like out of all of those options at the bottom of page 62. It's the one that I identify with the most because business is business. I don't have a sentimental relationship with my higher power. I have a working relationship with my higher power. There are sentimental moments, maybe, but that's not the meat and potatoes of it. The meat and potatoes of it is, God, what do you want me to do today? God, what do you want me to do today? Um, I then had to take the uh, steps four through nine. Um, the, the chief uh, object of that, in my case, was to forgive everyone for everything because my resentment gets in the way. I needed to disclose all the secrets. I needed to make all the amends, which I did. I needed to pay back all the money. Um, and the way I live today is very simple. The method is steps 11 and 10 in that order. And I'll tell you why. The content is step 12. So the content of my life is to, I've got to look after myself first. Alanon has taught me this. Uh, you've got to put your own uh, oxygen mask on first before trying to help other people. I have a quote from a wonderful old woman from Glasgow about that as well, but it's too indecent to share over Zoom. So you can contact me for that little anecdote afterwards. But I've got to look after myself first or I'm in no position to help other people. The delivery van needs to run. Um, I've got to help people within AA by being a channel for God to help them through me. I help no one, God helps people. I'm the dinner lady, slopping out the food onto your little metal tray. I'm not the food, I'm not the chef. And similarly in the outside world, thy will be done. If you want me to do it, if it's a reasonable thing to do, I'll do it. If I'm paid, great. If I'm not, great. There has to be a balance there. Um, and just in the last couple of minutes, uh, yeah, yeah, step, so step 11, get up in the morning, God, what do you want me to do? Step 10, pages 84 to 85, keeps me on track during the day, keeps my mind where it is not meant to be, focused today on the task at hand, minding my own effing business. What is my business? The task at hand, full stop. And then step 11 at night, debrief, connect with the higher power, go to sleep, sleep like a baby with the best of luck. Um, and how I work my program today in the last minute and 30 seconds. Um, uh, I use the steps constantly, but not obsessively. I don't turn each run through the steps or attempt to use the steps into a great Barnum and Bailey circus of look how spiritual I am. I quietly sit down with the higher power, I use the tools available in steps four through nine. When up, you know, every, every few weeks, every through, every every few months, and come up with a list of what my problems are and what the solutions my higher power suggests. I'm gonna. I did this yesterday. I did a 360 degree survey of my life using the tools made available by the Big Book in steps four through nine. And um, this was my list of corrective measures. And I'm gonna end on this. Use my time well. Don't engage in unstructured introspection. Do not dissipate my time. Avoid unnecessary interaction with the world. Work hard, but don't go crazy. Accept all of my emotions. Put myself in other people's shoes, particularly those of my other half. 
accept everything without judgment, rise above it all, strengthen my relationship with God, desist from attack thoughts and set boundaries frugally and gently. And at uh, almost precisely 40 minutes, I'm going to stop. Uh, thank you for listening.